0: Welcome to this modern education podcast that explores learning, from the everyday exchange of thoughts and ideas to the theories and practices behind entire systems. Think education is cool? So do we. So we pair two conversations learn about our guests, then learn from our guests, share your takeaways, and come back for more. You're listening to Think Pair Share with me, Audrey Scott. Today, we'll focus on learning through doing and on ways to create sustainable pathways out of adversity for children and youth. We'll consider the compelling intersection between inner vulnerability and outward resilience. And for all you conspiracy theorists out there, we'll explore the conspiracy of goodness as well. So, without further ado, I'm honored to welcome Dr. Neil Boothby to Think Pair Share. Neil is a professor and director of the Global Center for the Development of the Whole Child at the University of Notre Dame. He's an internationally recognized expert and advocate for children affected by war, displacement, and abject poverty. As a senior representative of UNICEF, UNHCR, and Save the Children, he has worked for more than 25 years with children in adversity around the world. I'm eager to begin the conversation. Neil, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it.
1: My pleasure, Audrey. Nice to be with you.
0: Nice to see you as you're holding down the fort on the east coast. Um, So thanks for joining me via Zoom today, and we look forward to the conversation. Great, my pleasure. How have you been? I've
1: I've been good under the circumstances. uh, Gosh, I think it's March 13th was the last time I was sort of out of my little cocoon. And thank goodness, at the country level, we're able to continue. Uh, doing things. So that part is good. Yeah. How about you?
0: S- same. Obviously our filming has been um, quite curtailed, but we've had a chance to sort of boost up the audio stories and sure appreciate you joining us. Ready to go? Okay. If you could pick up one new skill in an instant, what would it be?
1: One new skill in an instant. I, I think it would be Creole. I would like to be able to speak uh, Creole because we spend an awful lot of time in Haiti. Um, I, I get by a bit in French, uh, but Creole allows you to talk to, to people within the communities in a way that I, can,
0: I can't do at the moment. If you could live with any fictional character, who would you choose?
1: Oh, um, So I'm a huge Walker Percy fan. And uh, there's, a, there's a novel called The Movie Goer where Binks Bowling is the main character. He lives in New Orleans. And I found him to be a very fascinating sort of existential type thinker. I'm not sure I'd really want to be him, but he's a character that that fascinated me at a at a very sort of uh, time in my life where I was still trying to figure out who I was and what I wanted to do. So Walker Percy's my favorite author, and one of the best characters is Binks Bowling.
0: I'm not as familiar. Can you tell me something that you found fascinating about him?
1: So Walker Percy described himself as a Catholic existentialist. Um, uh, He was an MD. He he never really practiced. Um, His father died at an early age. So it kind of got him sort of preoccupied with questions about, you know, where did we come from? What should we do while we're here and where are we going after we die? So the novel, The moviegoer Goer, is, is set in New Orleans around Mardi Gras, and it takes place over the course of a week, and really nothing action-wise happens, except the main character is going through a whole process of trying to figure out um, how he can wake up in the morning, put one foot in front of the other, and uh, live a life of meaning. And uh, in the end, he ends up um, uh, getting together and marrying uh, an individual um, whom he's he's known uh, for quite some time Kate um, who is somewhat fragile herself uh, but at the end there's there's a there's a there's a closing passage where Kate who suffers from anxiety it has to go downtown she has to take the bus and Binks says, listen sit in the second seat on the right and I will be thinking of you the entire ride And again, it's sort of, puts together that I-thou relationship. I don't exist outside of the perception of somebody else. Um, uh, And and so they sort of solidified and sort of came together around kind of holding each other in in one's mind and one's heart. And that makes the relationship real.
0: Sounds actually really, really wonderful. I shall look this up, thank you. If you were in charge of picking the eighth wonder of the world, what would you choose?
1: Ah, the eighth wonder of the world. Uh, uh, I'm going to fudge the answer a little bit and turn it into a modern day miracle, uh, alleviating poverty, actually creating equality at minimum in this country, if not globally.
0: I don't think there can be a better answer than that. What do you wish you had placed in a time capsule 15 years ago?
1: Hmm. Um, Probably what my personal goals were at that time. And I guess I would pull them out and sort of check to see the extent to which uh some of those have been achieved and and perhaps uh how they might be refined and redressed uh, moving forward in this next part of my life
0: actually that would be really cool i always thought i wish i had done more journaling as a <laughs>
1: i threw most of my journals out i did not unfortunately bury them
0: <laughs> okay do you work better with music or without music and if so what are you listening to now
1: so normally I would say I, I work without music, except when I am writing um, uh, more reflective pieces. So if I'm in my science side of the brain, I, I don't like music. If I'm in more kind of creative, personal journal, you know, journaling, writing letters to loved ones and whatnot, I will. I will turn on music, and and I think um, I, Ronnie Laws is someone I spend a lot of time listening to. He's a, a, a jazz. Um, person who plays pretty mellow music, and I find it quite uh, uh, quite soothing and quite um, allows me to sort of think uh, without having to deal with a lot of words. It's, it's, it's largely instrumental as opposed to vocal.
0: That makes sense. Yeah, I knew a woman at work who could not work without music, so she'd wear her headphones all the time, but but you're right, I, I, I fall in that camp of you. If I'm trying to concentrate, I like a, something in the background that's not necessarily interfering, but that can help me focus, so. Um, okay, one more in the fun category. Name a healthy food you enjoy and an unhealthy food you find hard to resist.
1: <laughs> well, so my wife, Susan, we, we we do share cooking responsibilities, but she makes the best salads I've ever had. So I would say a, a salad from Susan would be the, the healthiest. Uh, she does all the organic vegan stuff as well. Um, uh, and on the unhealthy side, I... One of my remaining vices are Lay's potato chips. Uh, even when I do 40% reduced salt, I still, I still feel guilty when I eat them.
0: Those are one of my husband's favorites as well. So I, 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 don't think you can eat just one. They were right about that. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you for playing along. And I appreciate sort of getting a little fun glimpse into to some of the stuff you enjoy. Tell me a little bit about the Global Center for the Development of the Whole Child. Explain a little bit about what that is and what the main crux of the work that you're doing is right now. Sure.
1: So the uh, Global Center for the Development of the Whole Child is a university-wide center that sits in the Institute for Educational Initiatives. And it was founded in November 2019. Um, We work in um, uh, nine different countries. Uh, On the one hand, we work in two countries around uh, crisis, um, so refugees and internally displaced people. Uh, We work in India, um, for example, with um, the tribal societies, which have set up residential schools to work with children from the uh, elite, the outcasts, and others that grow up in abject poverty and societally and historically have been told that they're not worth anything. And so these schools really work on self-esteem and, 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 and you can do it and imbuing 21st century skills and have been quite successful in terms of progressing children out of that uh, ditch that they've been in. And in Haiti, for example, where we're working in 340 school communities and sort of activating a Catholic parish uh, system that includes the, the school, the church, and the family and, and really working at how do we activate, create and activate a child development and learning system. Because in a country like Haiti, for example, the government doesn't function terribly well. And about 85% of education is provided by non-governmental actors. So you really kind of have to create the system. So we work in abject poverty, um, kids facing multiple kinds of adversity. And we, we we look at it perhaps in terms of approaching it systemically. How can we activate the entities around children that are are most important in their daily lives and support those entities uh, as best we can.
0: I feel like the scope of your work could seem overwhelming. First, how would you describe the work you do and how did you get involved in it?
1: Well, thanks for that question. I've sort of zigzagged in and out of sort of academia on the one hand and then operational organizations. On the other, so I've you know taught at Harvard, taught at Duke, taught at Columbia, and, and came to Notre Dame, most recently. But in between, I you know I worked, I ran, Save the children's programs, uh, children in crisis programs. I was the head of UNHCR's children's unit. Uh, uh, I worked in Rwanda after the genocide with the UN, uh, and whatnot. And and I think to me the culmination of those experiences where you're you know sort of putting your hands in the wound so to speak, but then you're coming out and being able to think about it and write a bit about it has been useful, but I think it, it's it's also sort of forged a, a perspective, which I think is the, the, the global center represents that perspective, which is um, that if you're talking about kids in adversity, one intervention such as health or education is not necessarily gonna change the life trajectories of kids because the structural issues are multidimensional. So the center in a, in a, in a sense, attempts to understand what are the key interventions that what you need to do to, to not only get kids to learn how to read and write, but actually then support them in, in, in terms of evolving out of poverty. And and perhaps our program in Haiti is the best example of that in that Notre Dame has been there for 14 years. We came to Notre Dame in 2019. I moved my uh, operation from, from Columbia University to Notre Dame largely out of my experience in, in Haiti with the Notre Dame team, which was incredible commitment to making a difference in the lives of children and learning through doing. I was inspired by Notre Dame's conspiracy of goodness in Haiti, and I think we've moved from kind of a literacy program for first and second graders, so a school-based program that was in 340 schools, so it had quite a bit of scope uh, and scale, but it was a singular intervention, teaching young kids how to read. And we've moved from there much more towards a, a parish systems activation model, whereby in a country like Haiti, the government does not invest that much in education. 85% of the schools are managed by non-governmental actors. So religious actors, civil society actors, et cetera. And so there isn't a, a robust national system. So the question then is, what, what, is, what is a system? What is a child development and learning system in Haiti? And, and and actually the Catholic church provides the best opportunity to invest in systems because you have a church. So, so very religious people, they go to church. Mm-hmm. Every, every parish has a school or most parishes have school. So you have a church and a school and then you have families mm-hmm. that send their kids to school and, and go to church. So those are the three most important things in the daily lives of children. In fact, you know, there's sort of a, a, a saying in Haiti that there's only three places that your kids should be, either in school, at home, or in the church. And so that sort of, we call it, it's la kai, la col, la glisse. So it's our three L system. We're looking at what can we do at the household level, especially given that the parents really are the first teachers and the household was the first school, and that 70% of the achievement gap is evident before kids even go to school. So, so how they get off, whether they get off to a strong start or a slow start or whatever start, really determines then to a large extent where they are when they start formal school. And we saw with the literacy program, we did a pretty rigorous RCT and you know they did learn how to read, comprehension went up, word recognition went up, but the bar was so low to begin with that though they made progress, like kids would come into school in first grade, never have been read to, or they 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 hadn't drawn, or the teacher would say, turn to page six. Half the kids didn't know what a page number was. So that's kind of the baseline in a certain sense. So we we went younger and we're working now on what can parents do? So we have parent teaching programs, kids get baptized. You know, what can what can parents do at the household level? And then what can the church do? So the baptism there's three to five pre-sessions before you're baptized. So the parents and the godparents and the extended family come in. So we've, we've integrated sort of healthy brain science, you know, it's simplified. We have right. videos that show parents how their love will support, you know, positive brain development, et cetera, et cetera. So we've used, we're, we're sort of using the church and the baptism is the mechanism that is most scalable. So we get parents when they're young you know, they can get referred to the parent training programs. We have resource centers now where, where you can come in. We can't take the internet to every household, but you can put it in every school community and parents and others can come in and download digital stuff, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, th- I'm getting into the weeds here, but the point is is we, we're activating a system because in combination, those interventions stand a better chance of uh, promoting lifelong learning and, and actual changes in the lives of, of kids. So that, that's essentially what we do. And, and uh, we have two types of partnerships. We have the dig in deep stuff like Haiti and India is another example of where we're in it for the long term. But then we kind of come alongside in other countries and provide technical assistance around program design measurement and learning. So it's kind of a blend of what we call our flagship programs: dig deep, long-term operational versus kind of technical support.
0: It sounds like extremely rewarding work are you comfortable sharing? Why do you do it?
1: Yeah, no, I I, I am because it's it's uh it 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 is a lifelong uh, uh, endeavor, and um I, I'm I'm of an age where I don't necessarily have to continue working, but I can't find anything
0: that's more meaningful. Was there something that made you look at the world versus focusing on the U.S.?
1: No, that's a great that's a great question. I um. I'm not sure there was a thing that did. I was, I was extremely fortunate to study with um, Robert Coles, who was a social psychiatrist at Harvard. That's basically why I went there. And Bob was someone who took his sort of uh, skills into the real world. And he, for example, was, was observing uh, black children who were integrating schools in the South for the first time during the civil rights movement. And whatnot. So I was very captivated with that sort of approach, not lab work, but work in the, in the real world. And on my way to Harvard, I think it was somewhere in Oklahoma, um, I was stuck on a freeway and, and I was listening to a radio program about um, people from Southeast Asia coming to the United States. And it dawned on me that that's kind of what I wanted to focus on. I wanted to focus on refugees' flight. Uh, Etc. And so I sort of when I got when I got to graduate school, I sort of put those two interests together. And I'm still not quite sure why that ca- especially in the middle of Oklahoma, why that captured me. But those two things kind of came together in my mind. I was uh, doing an internship, and I was asked to uh, uh, assess the sort of the mental health of a of a young uh, white boy who had lit a house on fire. And it turns out the house that he lit on fire was occupied by Vietnamese people who had come over on. Uh, you know the boat people during during that era. Fast forward, the one of the persons in the house was a young thirteen year old girl who had lost her mother at sea. She had been that uh, had been attacked by Thai pirates. Um, uh, she had been raped and thrown overboard, and and the girl survived. Um, and I was, uh, I guess, captivated, fascinated by this uh, dialectic of intervulnerability. She certainly her life had changed. Uh, her, her uh, speaking of her mother would bring tears to her eyes. It was, it was still a living um, uh, uh, pain, so to speak. And still, she functioned at such a high level. Within the two years she had lived in this country, she had learned to speak English. She was the best math student in her school. And in fact, the boy who lit the house on fire had been. Uh, the school's math winner the year before and and, and and this young woman had displaced him and so there was a personal connection and also a racial connection uh, between what happened and so this whole thing about what is resilience
0: yes. became,
1: but that that was inspired by a 13 year old but I was fascinated with her inward vulnerability but outward resiliency and that helped me sort of frame what my dissertation was going to be about and with a small research grant I worked went and worked on the Thai-Cambodia border right after the Khmer Rouge uh, genocide and millions of people were fleeing Cambodia. But it was that young girl who kind of really solidified my interest in in child development and, and crisis. So a little serendipity, but that's life.
0: I'm fascinated by so many of the experiences that you've had. Being there amongst these tragedies, can you talk to me about the human spirit in those elements,
1: thank you, thank you for that question. I, I, I do think that, that that's extremely important, and and I must confess that um. You go you go into the situation. So if you look at the you know the, the sort of the genocide in Rwanda, you see the best and the worst of humanity. I mean, you see cruelty beyond belief, but you see compassion and sharing and solidarity, in ways that you just I, I don't experience it in the same way in my everyday life. Um, um, and maybe just two, two, two examples, kind of the, the worst moment in my professional life and perhaps one of the better ones. Um, the worst moment, clearly, the tragedy was, 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 in, was in what was then Zaire, now the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And there was you know, a million refugees, Rwandese, ended up flooding into uh, Zaire, which is lava rocks, big, a big volcano, lava rocks, and it's on a big, big lake called Lake Kibu. And they were emaciated, sort of reed thin, wobbling into the camp, thirsty, hungry. They all rushed down to Lake Kivu and they started drinking water. And it turned out that it was, it was they all got, a lot of people got cholera. And, uh, and they were dying like 10,000 a month, I think, at the height. Well, this left a lot of children that were perceived to be alone, abandoned, or orphaned. The babies were picked up and taken to a Caritas uh, refugee camp. This is where the baby orphanage was. And, and, and it was basically the orphanage was just sheets of blue plastic, you know, to cover for the cover for the rain, which didn't happen that often, dirt floors, and then army cots just put in rows. And the babies were stacked, you know, put on the, on the cots like loaves of bread with IV stuck in their, in their arms. So they were getting nutritional input, but nobody, nobody picked them up and held them. And I remember getting there one day and, and, and this, this one baby was in the process of dying, not not because of micronutrient uh, deficiencies, but because of the lack of love and care. and And I remember picking him up and looking in his eyes and he was already in a different world. And I remember at the time thinking about my firstborn son, when he was about three months, and I picked him up in a similar way. And I looked in his eyes, and he laughed, and he giggled, and he recognized me. And it, it, in, in, in Zaire, it was the opposite experience. It was this haunting look uh, of no facial recognition, because he, he it was a boy. He had cried and cried and cried, and nobody responded to his needs you know, and he, you know, it's, it's called fail, failure to thrive, where, where you don't have any human conduct, you cry and cry and cry, when nobody picks you up, you give up. And that moment has haunted me ever since. I hope now it haunts me in a good way. But it was very, very painful. So that's the ugly side of things. But but it also is a window into what you need to do. Now, why in the heck did these nuns think they didn't have to pick up babies? Yeah. And why in the heck, when I asked them that question, well, we have to train people first. Well, you mean to tell me you have to train a Rwandese woman or a Zairean woman how to pick up a baby and wrap the baby around you know, their bodies with their scars and go on with their everyday chores? Come on, this is not rocket science. So it, it provided a window of maybe a positive intervention, but it, it, it was, well, it was, it was awful. On the flip side of that, um, one of the better moments professionally is in Mozambique where war had divided hundreds of thousands of kids from their parents, they were separated from the parents. And in many cases, the kids and the parents didn't know if one or the other was alive. And we started a family reunification program and ended up re- re- reunifying uh, I don't know, tens of thousands of kids over the course of, of, of a year or so. But one of those moments, again, it was a, it was a teenage girl who had not seen her parents for over two years, and we put her on an airplane. We flew her back into the area that she lived. We got off the airplane. We're walking through uh, kind of a quasi, it's not jungle, but sort of savanna, whatever, in these pathways, and there's little huts uh, along the way, and you can start hearing people uh, in, in, their, in their native language talking and, and kind of getting excited, and there was kind of a rumble that went through from house to house and we walk up and finally the daughter and the mother see each other and wrap their arms around each other and embrace each other. And that's also a moment that's worth
0: a lot of time. Oh my goodness, thank you for all the wonderful work you're doing. Oh, and that you care, see, and and that's, you you could throw up your hands. You could be like, that's not my problem. Why do you do the, the work that you do?
1: Well, it's moments like that. Uh, I, I can't think of anything I'd rather be doing. I mean, I, I, I love golf. I, I do play a lot of golf. But it, I got I to gotta tell you, as much as I love it, it doesn't compare to moments uh, of, of, of uh, whether it's in a Haitian community or, or in a refugee camp in Tanzania. Uh, it's, that's just, that's my community.
0: Is there a calling there for you?
1: Yes. I, um, I mean, we spent a lot of time working. I, I can't imagine doing something I didn't love. Uh, uh, as they say, if you find something that you love, you never have to work. And, and so there's that personal relationship uh, of, 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 of being in a place like it. I've had my ups and downs. I've many, many failures. I've been in organizations which just grind you. But to, to make a long story short, absolutely. I do feel called to these issues, I'm not sure why. Um, And the reason I came to Notre Dame in 2019 is because Notre Dame feels that calling too.
0: We all need moments to to believe in something bigger and hopeful. And it sounds like even though you've seen some of the very worst this world has to offer, you're still hopeful. Are you?
1: Absolutely, there is, maybe it's cliches at this point in time. I think resilience may be overused, but people, our souls and our hearts are, are quite resilient. I mean, you know, if you want to look at it scientifically, evolutionary, we've been going through you know bad events forever and ever, and 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 we do have tremendous ability to to persevere and bounce back. Um, I don't know what it would be like to live in a world where you're not hopeful. I think in this country we're seeing that increasingly sort of this politics of grievance that's that's out there, which is kind of based on 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 pain, neglect, anger, uh, and whatnot. I I I I worry most about us as a nation spending too much time in that grievance. We have to, I think, extend equality to, to everyone, but but uh, on a personal level, and a societal level, we 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 we've got to we've got to find that hopeful place, and then and then realistically. Uh, uh, Build out from that. I just, for myself, I can't imagine. Even in the end, if you lose, it's better to to work from a position of hope um, than it is from a position of grievance.
0: I do have one more question I would like to ask you about that. It sort of fits into this category. You've you've seen some very violent things, but you also see um, the other side of it. People think violence begets begets violence, but you have observed where people in their next generation, want to make that difference, be that difference, give their families what they didn't have. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Whether it's sort of the Cambodian children that I first worked with uh, back in the early 80s, uh, many of whom have resettled in the United States and we continue a relationship, they're now in their 30s, 40s, or child soldiers in Mozambique that were abducted trained and forced to kill other human beings, and now have gone back to their families. And again, they're, they have kids of their own and we, we stay in touch more episodically. Um, but but using, using those two groups as an example, and, 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 and the genocide that was, that was Cambodia and the, and the brutality of Renamo atrocities in Mozambique, wide scale, um, the vast majority have grown up, have gotten married, have children, and it really is with their children that you see the difference. In many cases, it's not, again, sort of bringing forward um, harsh punishment, discipline, anger, alcoholism, whatever. The, the, the violence that we often get described as being perpetuated, kids that are exposed to violence perpetuate violence. I haven't seen that in, in, in the aggregate. What I've seen more is, is altruism. That I didn't get this as a child and I want to make sure my son or daughter has it. So, for example, in Mozambique, kids of former child soldiers actually, as an aggregate, go to school longer than children who didn't experience those things. I'm not equating the two, but I'm just saying. And it's a little bit, uh, Audrey, like uh, the, the way that a, a pearl is formed. It starts off as sand and an irritant, you know, in a, in a, in a clam. And there's, there's a reaction around that. And whatnot, but yet it eventually comes out as something of high value, and that's kind of what I've seen in some of these children, you know, that have gone through crisis. Is I don't know how to explain it uh, very well, but it's 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 altruism more often than it is violence. That's beautiful.
0: Thank you. What does resilience mean to you, and does education play a, a role in that? And if so, what?
1: Yeah, so I think I think there's a tendency in the United States to look at resilience solely as an individual characteristic. This child is resilient; she has the ability to bounce back from adversity or bounce back for, tra- for trauma. She never gives up, uh, et cetera. And I think to some extent that is a, a, a rightful definition of resilience. But but I think you also need to look at resilience from a social perspective. That girl would not have had the ability to bounce back had she not been you know, with parents or other caretakers who who gave her, you know, that love and that responsive care that sort of solidified kind of the social and emotional capacities within her cognitive development, you know, which is kind of the brick and mortar for sort of academic success. So, so I think it's both an individual, but a social construct, you do not become resilient on your own, you become resilient through interactions with others. Um, and then the reciprocal relationship between education, individuals and, and, and resilience is resilience, resilient children do better in school and good schools produce resilience for that social interaction stuff. So there's a reciprocal relationship between the individual's resilience and then the school's resilience and, and each needs its other. The challenge I think for education is that we're preparing kids for jobs that don't even exist yet. So it's difficult to know exactly how to do that. But there's, there, there are some sort of true and tried um, uh, things, for example. We, we know that, um, so reading and writing and those kinds of skills are important, but the cement or the glue around that is also social and emotional development. Um, if you can't regulate behavior, if you can't concentrate, it may, it may may matter less how smart you are, for example. And so I think around the social and emotional issues, um, perseverance, uh, you know, empathy, um, you know, not giving up, being able to modulate your 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 emotions so you're not um, uh, going into tirades on the on the one extreme or perhaps on the other side becoming passive and you know. Uh, not participating and whatnot. So those kinds, of, those kinds of concerns are going to be solid regardless of what the jobs are. So I think it's a combination of, 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 of making sure that education is sort of holistic, that we're educating all parts of the child, perhaps even including her, her spirituality, for example, and not settling for just the academic stuff.
0: Are there things that the average person might be able to do to try to contribute to something better in your work, in your worldview?
1: I think if, if, if the focus is global, so, so beyond one's own community or beyond one's own, own, own nation, I, I think being aware of what's taking place in the world, um, uh, in particular, perhaps the countries nearest to us. So there's lots of issues and problems in Latin America and Mexico and you know, the, the whole immigration issue, of course, Haiti. Is our neighbor, and it's the poorest community in, in the Western Hemisphere. And probably many of us maybe don't pay as much attention to those things as possible. So I would just say, sort of, stay aware and 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 contribute in one form or another when when possible. But perhaps the best learning takes place locally. So maybe global awareness and and but there's a lot of things you can do in your own community. You know, whether that's volunteering in a school, whether that's helping uh, elderly people, reading to young children. You know, we're learning more and more if we go back to the early childhood development paradigm, the numbers of words that say children in middle-class professional households versus poor, perhaps welfare households, by the time they go to school could be as many as millions of words. And again, that, that, that gap, what could a community do about, you know, the former kids that you can read to them? you know, you can volunteer. There's lots of things you can do to really, really help children in your own community. So I, I would urge that sort of action, but then also maintaining an awareness of what's going on around the United States, for
0: example. Wonderful. In reading a lot of the materials and things that you're working on, I'm, here, uh, I'm reading this conspiracy of goodness. Do you, <laughs> um, what does that mean?
1: Well, I think it's so conspiracy of goodness is something I've sort of taken from a, a, a group of um, Huguenots in, in France during the uh, Nazi occupation that ended up taking in many, many Jews when that was illegal and dangerous. And one of the children that was taken uh, and came, came, came back as an adult and did a documentary called uh, Weapons of the Spirit. And he's trying to explain, he goes back to these communities and asks people that are still there, why did you do that? And they said, well, what else could we have done? This was, this is what was required of us. And so we kind of cast around that whole phenomenon. This was a conspiracy of goodness. And, and that's always stuck with me because I think, you know, I think the Global Center and the work in Haiti and, and our colleagues in the Institute for Educational Initiatives and their ACE programs, these are conspiracies of goodness. We, 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 we might stub our toes, we might fail. We might not achieve everything we want to achieve, but we're we're attempting, I think, to do good. And so it it to me, it's it's a good conspiracy to be part of versus some of the other ones that we're hearing about these, <laughs> which are which are kind of, uh, of weird to say
0: the least. I couldn't agree more, and I'm happy to be um, in on this conspiracy of goodness with you and others. And thank you so much for your time today, Neil. Oh. It's been a pleasure.
1: Nice talking with you.
0: And thank you all for joining us for Think, Pair, Share. If you enjoyed this episode, head on over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Check out our website at iei.nd.edu forward slash media for this and other goodies. Thanks for listening. And for now, off we go.